Thank you. If you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Hebrews chapter 1 where Lee just read from. We'll be uh, going through those verses as we continue our series through Hebrews uh, called Jesus is Better. And despite the fact that our culture is increasingly nominal, increasingly non-Christian, there is a crazy fascination that many in our culture have with angels. Uh, you can see this, you know, uh, Christian and non-Christian. Like you walk into someone's home and a lot of times it's going to be decorated with angels. Now they're declawed. They're not, you know, crazy warriors, powerful of light. They're, you know, precious moments or ladies in dresses with wings. Not at all representative of what we find about angels in Scripture. And we replace them with diaper-wearing diaper cupids and whatnot. But this stuff's everywhere. There's just a preoccupation with it. You can buy it at any store. Kirkland's, Cracker Barrel. Like, you don't have to go to a Christian store. It's everywhere. Target. And then dating myself a little bit, like when I was in college, there seemed to have been like an, an increased popu- popularity as it related to angels. There was this creepy movie came out called um, The City of Angels, and Sarah McLaughlin sang a song in the arms of the angels, right? And there was this really whacked out TV show called Touched by an Angel, and then there was a spinoff of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called Angel. Stuff just crazy. Not even close to what angels actually are. But then even in the church, sometimes our angelology gets a little bit weird. That's why John preached a sermon during the summer, you know, in our series, Things That the Bible Does Not Say, around like the wrong idea when someone passes away of, well, you know, God just must have needed another angel. Because, as John pointed out, the truthfulness of that is about the same as saying God must have needed another aardvark. Like, you don't change species. You don't start a human and then become an angel. You don't, like, God created angels, He created humans, He created aardvarks. You don't become an aardvark, you don't become an angel. So, like, if you were a follower of Jesus and you were to die today, your soul would go to heaven, your body would go in the ground, And when Jesus comes again someday, He would gloriously resurrect that body, put your soul back with that body, and you will be forever and fully human again. That's our hope. And you won't age anymore, you won't die anymore, you won't get sick anymore, you won't sin anymore. New heavens and new earth. But ours, this time frame, is not the only time that people have gotten a little bit confused about what angels are and what they do. Writing during, you know, <clears throat> the first century, the writer of authors is, is confronting a little bit of some bad angelology that had been picked up in the intertestamental period. Now, the intertestamental period is the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, about 400 years. This is like the Maccabees. This is where Hanukkah comes from during that period. And during that period, the Jews had kind of, kind of become like Jewish nationalists and believed that angels were like the army that was to protect them, that they were going to come and first overthrow the Greeks, and then after the Romans took over the Greeks, they were going to come and overthrow the Romans, that they were like the protectors. This is what they believed. This is also where the idea, the extra-biblical idea of a guardian angel came in to popularity as well. But that's not in the Bible either. God's a lot more gracious than that. He sends scores of angels to protect his people, not just one. Even though I love, you know, Chris, I love Clarence and, you know, it's a wonderful life and all that, but that's not the way it goes down. And so thankfully in this section, 
before us this morning, we get a chance to kind of learn a lot about who angels actually are, because the Bible does talk about them like 300 times. So, very, you know, see them in Scripture a lot. But what we need to understand is this, that's not the point. It's not angels that's the point here. The point is the supremacy of Christ. So talking about angels is in the context of showing us the supremacy of Christ. Because remember what the book of Hebrews is, is all about. It is, the author is proving to Jewish converts then and us today that Jesus is better than anything we might be prone to look to as a God replacement. And so in this section, it's almost like the author saying, hey, you know how much you're all into angels and all that? And yeah, you got some wacky beliefs on that, but like, you do rightly see that they're glorious and they're powerful. Yeah, well, take that. Jesus is way better than that. Jesus is way better than that. And so he goes on to detail out reasons. That's why it keeps reading, you know, of the sun, he says this, but of angels, he says this, of the sun, he says this, of the angels, he says this. And so he gives us seven Old Testament quotations to argue his point. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of try to summarize those into five reasons that Jesus is better than angels. Five reasons that Jesus is better than angels. With the prayer being, we would just see, again, the supremacy of Christ over not just angels, but everything. And so five reasons that Jesus is better than angels. And so look at verse 1 again with me. We've been looking at the first couple of verses now for a couple of weeks. We'll move on, but I do want to get this in our brain. <clears throat> verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, being the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, that, that name, all right, the name, name connotes like all that a person is, their conduct, their character, everything about them. And the name specifically here is son. That's the name Jesus has here. And so look at verse 5 with me. Like he, he doesn't call angels this. He calls Jesus son. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, like rhetorical question, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Like he said that to Jesus. And so the first reason that Jesus is better than angels, you can write this down in your notes, is because He is the Son, not a servant. Now, He serves us, He loves us, but He is not a servant in His nature. He is the Son. Angels are servants. Angels serve God, they're created beings, but Jesus is the uncreated, eternal Son of God. Now, somebody says, whoa, whoa, whoa. It says He inherited that name. It, it, it says in the rest of verse 5, Oh no, it says at the beginning, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
So, Joe, how are you going to say that he is the eternal son of God? Well, this gives me a great opportunity to just teach for a minute. All right, big word I want you to write down if you've never heard it before. There's a word called hermeneutics, right? Can you all say that with me? Hermeneutics. You guys are scholars. Great. Write down that, that word, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how you study the Bible. It's how you interpret the Bible. And the first rule of hermeneutics is you use more clear passages of Scripture to understand less clear passages of Scripture, okay? Scripture interprets Scripture. Very important to remember that. And so when you come to something that's not as quite clear, you use other verses, other passages that are very clear to help you understand that. Else you wind up handling snakes and all kinds of nonsense. Seriously, that's how cults begin, is not understanding hermeneutics. And so from the rest of Scripture, we clearly see that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. Right? He wasn't adopted into it. Uh, Hebrews 1.3 makes this clear. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and everything that was made was made through Him. And there was not anything made that was made that wasn't made through Him. And so if everything is made through Jesus, that means He can't be made. He's eternal. He's the Creator. Even here again in 1-2, through whom also He created the world. And so the eternal sonship of Jesus, and then I'm reminding some weeds, I get this, we'll come back to it in a minute. The eternal sonship of Jesus isn't in question here. But rather, the author's highlighting two different aspects of his sonship. All right? One, and the first one is this. He's highlighting how upon Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he was visibly proven to be the eternal Son of God. And so, Paul preaching in Acts 13 says this, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written, and then he quotes the second psalm, which is quoted here as well, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And so while Jesus is the eternally begotten Son, here the idea of begetting is that of declaring or manifesting that truth to the full. That's why Romans 1 4 puts it this way Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus has always been God's eternally begotten Son, but now that's being shown to be the case because he has been raised from the dead. So that's one aspect that this is highlighting here. The second thing is how Jesus is the Son of God and the son of David, and fulfills the promises of the Davidic covenant. He's the promised son of David who sits on the throne forever. And so the author quotes 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, you guys remember when we went through 2 Samuel, and 1 Samuel, and 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. 2 Samuel, Samuel, that's the Davidic covenant. This is where there's a promise, on your throne, David, will sit forever and ever and ever and ever the king. 
And so the author of Hebrews quotes this here. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, showing that this is who Jesus is. He is the messianic son, the fulfillment of the Davidic promises. And so I know we just mined in some weeds for just a minute. But the big point of this is, did God the Father ever say anything like this to the angels? No. He only says this to His Son. Angels are awesome. They're glorious servants of God, but they're just that. They're servants. And God has many servants, but He only has one Son. And His name is Jesus. The Davidic Son with a forever throne and the eternal Son who was proven to be that by His resurrection after dying for our sins on cross all right and so that's number one jesus is better that's the first reason the second reason the second reason is because he's worshiped not a worshiper so jesus is better than the angels because he is worshiped not a worshiper now quick question football season's about to begin right all god's people said amen we did that last week question is this who is the better player derrick henry or the guy who has all of Derrick Henry's posters in his room? Like, who, who's better? The player Derrick Henry or the guy who worships Derrick Henry? Who's the better player? Derrick Henry, right? This is an easy, obvious thing. And it's the same thing here. Jesus is superior, superior because he's worshipped by the angels. The angels don't, like, Jesus doesn't worship the angels. The angels worship Jesus. And you know this. I mean, you watch, you know, uh, you watch Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown Christmas, right? Linus recites everything. Luke 2, right? And the glory of God surrounded them, and they were sore afraid, right? And then eventually it gets down to now glory in the God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, Right? Angels we have heard on high. Hark the herald angels sing. All this, like we see, we see angels worshiping Jesus. When Jesus rises again, angels are there worshiping him. When Jesus ascends into heaven, angels are there worshiping him. When he sits at the right hand of the Father right now around the throne, angels are there worshiping him. The one who is worshiped is always greater than the one who's doing the worshiping. And so Jesus is better because he is worshipped, not a worshiper, just proving, like, don't look to the angels, folks. Don't look to anything. Jesus is better. And so here's the deal. If angels, I mean, this is what he's applying, if angels who these people revered worship Jesus, shouldn't you? Shouldn't I? If angels worship Jesus, shouldn't we? And like part of what we're doing this morning as we sing, as we pray, as we listen attentively right now, that's part of worshiping Jesus. But you know how else you worship Jesus? It's throughout the week when you're tempted to do something and you don't do it. That's worshiping Jesus. When you feel the draw to, 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 towards something and you say, no, 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 not doing that, not going there because Jesus is better. That's worship. That's an active part of worship. When you stop doing things that are sinful, that's an act of worship. When you start doing things that are kind, that are good, that are biblical, that's a part of act, 
that's a part of worship. We worship through song and through singing and through preaching and through praying. We worship with our lives as well. Everything we do in life is an act of worship. It's just what and who are you worshiping? And so often we worship ourselves. You know, I would not worship myself. I'm not like that. Watch your life. We do. That's why we need Jesus so much. And praise God that He is faithful and gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Because we need that, and that's who He is to us. Thank Him for that. And so Jesus is better because He is worshipped, not a worshiper. And so let us worship Him, not just with our lips, but with our lives. And where we fail, let's repent, let's turn, and let's remember Jesus comes to us that are repentant and says, where are those that condemn you? I don't either. Go and sin no more. Number three. Number three reason that Jesus is better. And this is kind of like the mic drop statement here. Number three. Jesus is better than the angels because God calls him God. God calls him God. Like specifically, God the Father refers to the Son as God. Look at verse 8. So he said, you know, in verse 7 of the angels, he says that he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne... Right? This is God talking. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God the Father calls the Son God here. Like Jesus is better because He's God. He's the second person of the Trinity. and He's always been God. Jesus was not created. Jesus has no beginning. Like when we see Jesus come at Christmas, that's not when Jesus starts. That's not His beginning. He has always been, but this is when He takes on flesh. Augustine puts it this way. Remaining what He was, God, He becomes what He wasn't. Man. And now for all time going forward, He is fully God and fully man. And somebody says, that makes absolutely no sense. And you're right. But the problem is in our brain, not in the truth. When you come to Scripture and you see two things that are simultaneously true, but you cannot comprehend them. Fully God, fully man at the same time. Fully sovereign in every aspect, but some level of, of, of you know, human responsibility. Like, how do those things fit? How can you be human responsibility, divine sovereignty? How can you be fully God, fully man? The problem isn't in the truth. The truths are true. The problem is in our three-pound fallen brain. We can't understand that. Someday, I think we'll get closer. When we're in heaven, I don't know that, I mean, we're not going to become omniscient. But I do think we'll have a better brain. It won't be sinful anymore, at least. And so Jesus is better than angels because He's God. Like, mic drop, walk off the stage, that's the end of the story. And then as God, look at a couple of things that this means. Continue to quote from the Old Testament, verse 10. As God, He's eternal, He's creator, and He's unchanging. Look at verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, like eternal, there. And the heavens are the work of your hands, Creator. And they will perish, but you remain eternal. They all wear out, the they is what He has made, so Creator. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, 
they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. I mean, Lee picked up on this in her prayer. What a comfort that truth is. That our Lord, like if you're in Christ, He is unchanging. Which means He can't change His mind about you. He can't stop loving you. He can't be ungracious. He can't be unmerciful. He can't be fast to anger. He can't not have steadfast love. This is who He is. This is how God defines Himself. Exodus 34, 6. So that's like the nature and character of who God is. And He's unchanging. And so that should bring comfort to you. And so whatever you're going through, even the deepest grief and pain, Jesus is gracious. And Jesus is merciful. And Jesus does have steadfast love. And Jesus is with you. And Jesus has not deserted you. He has not forsaken you. He's unchanging. That's the things you hold on to when feces hit the fan. See, I did a good job there. That's what you hang on to. That truth, when everything falls apart, it's not cliches, it's the nature and character of God that you hang on to. This is who He is, and He's unchanging. God calls Him God. Number four. Jesus is better than angels because, number four, He's the Messiah, not a messenger. Like angels, that's what they are, messengers. That's like the definition of the word angel in Greek. Messenger. But Jesus is Messiah. Now, you all remember last week, we talked about three big roles that Jesus fulfills from the Old Testament. You guys remember what they are? Maybe I shouldn't do this because I might feel bad about my teaching because you can't remember them. But, prophet, priest, oh, thank you guys. <laughs> Jesus is the true and better prophet. He's the true and better priest. He's the true and better king. Now, one thing I did not tell you last week is that those three positions in the Old Testament are all, like, they become, like you become that by being anointed, okay? Anointed. The word Messiah means anointed one. And so what's happening in those three big positions, they are being messiahed. They're being anointed. They point to Christ. And all three of those come to culmination and fulfillment in Jesus, who is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. When we say Christ, like Messiah is the Hebrew word, Christ is the exact same thing. It's just the Greek version of Messiah. It's the same word, same thing. And so all of this is just serving to highlight Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the true and better prophet, the true and better priest, the true and better king. He has been anointed. And so verse 9, quoting from Psalm 45, highlights this fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. Look at it with me. You have loved righteousness 
and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, again, we got this Trinitarian language going on here, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your compassion. So again, angels, they are wonderful. They are powerful. But what we need to see here is the supremacy of Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. The Son of David, the Son of God, the King of glory, worthy of exaltation, worthy of anointing and worshiped because of His perfect righteousness. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And so friends, here's some things. This is why He can save you. This is why Jesus can save you from your sin. Because yes, I'm like all this, who He is and what He's done, including living perfectly righteous. See, a lot of people would summarize the gospel by saying, you know, Jesus died for my sins, and that's true. That is absolutely true. But first, he had to live for your sins. And here's what I mean by that. You and I are sinful. We are sinners. We are sin- sinners by nature, right? That's why, like, we, this is our kids' wing over there across the other side of the courtyard. We don't have to teach them to sin. You don't have to teach your kids to lie, to steal, to take, to say mine, right? You, you don't have to teach them any of this. They just innately, and they have just a gift to be able to have the absolute worst meltdown ever at the worst times. It's like they know, like, I shouldn't have a meltdown. Mom, really, dad doesn't need it right now. I'm on it. Bam, right now. Right? They have that innate gift. We don't have to teach them these things. They are sinners, just thieves and crooks right that whole wing is just full of a bunch of little sinners we do which is a great example of how jesus loves us we're sinners this whole wing is full of a bunch of bigger sinners all of us we are all sinners in need of grace And so when Jesus died on the cross, He took our sins upon Himself. That's what He did. But first, He lived in our place, right? We're sinners, God's holy, there's no way to bridge that gap. And so here's what God did. He sent Jesus to come to earth to live a perfect, righteous, sinless life because we failed. All all of us failed. Like the same boat here. And so Jesus came and did it for us. He lived perfect. He lived sinless. He lived righteous. And then he died in our place to pay our penalty. He was our substitute for our life. He was our substitute for our deserved death. He rose again in victory over that. And so on the cross, Jesus took from us our sins. But then he gave to us, he credited to us like direct deposit his righteousness. And so now when we stand before the Father, we stand holy and blameless, holy. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did. His righteousness becomes ours. And that's how we can be saved. He has loved righteousness. He's hated wickedness. He loved perfectly. He is the Messiah. And so, dear friend, run to Jesus for the righteousness we so lack but have to have to stand before the Father. Run to Him. He 
offers it freely to all who would take of it. Run to Him. Run to the Messiah. Angels are amazing messengers. Jesus is the Messiah. And so Jesus is better than angels because He's the Son, not a servant. He's worshipped, not a worshiper. God calls Him God. He's the Messiah, not a messenger. And then finally this morning, because He is the exalted Savior King, not a ministering spirit. Look at verse 13. And to the wit, again, rhetorical questions here. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, he's quoting Psalm 110 here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they, like angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so again, angels are wonderful. They are glorious creatures. God made them. They serve Him. They're ministering spirits to us. They protect us. They help us. But Jesus is the exalted Savior King. Verse 13, again, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so, as I said last week, the right hand of the Father is a place of power. It's a place of exaltation. And Jesus is sitting there until God makes His enemies a footstool. Which is a, a, a word picture, like of the ancient practice of literally, like you got your throne and then there's a place where you rest your feet. And they would literally engrave on the footstool pictures of their enemies. When you get home, you can Google King Tut's footstool and you can see an example of that. That's what they did. Sometimes even they would put it, they'd engrave it on their sandals that they walked around in, just... I won. I'm in victory. I'm over these things. And that's the whole point. Like The point is the enemies are defeated. Jesus' enemies are defeated. And who are Jesus' enemies? It is not us. We were once enemies prior to Christ, but now we're friends. Now we're adopted family. Who are the enemies? 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end. This is verse 24. When He delivers the kingdom of God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for He must reign until He has put His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so the enemies that Jesus will destroy and end are sin, Satan, the worldly powers, Death and the grave. Like these are Christ's enemies. Richard Phillips has a great way of, of putting this. Here's, here's how he writes it. During his earthly ministry, Jesus advanced into the ranks of his enemy, casting out demons, purifying leprosy, bringing healing to the sick, exposing hypocrisy, opposing false teaching, humbling the proud, cleansing the temple of money changers, and all the while calling sinners to faith and repentance. But it is especially in the extension of the gospel that he now overcomes his foes as men and women come to saving faith in him. And in the end, he will have no enemies left standing. As the book of Revelation tells us, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
and He will wipe away every tear from His people's eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, He's making all things new. And so friends, lift up your eyes to see the supremacy of Christ. Don't look. You can be prideful in two ways. You can be prideful by thinking, I'm the best. You can also be prideful by thinking, I'm the worst. I'm terrible. I'm awful. You know what those two things have in common? They begin with I statements. They're focused on self. Get your eyes off yourself. Whether you think you're here or whether you think you're here and get your eyes on Christ. That's humility. Humility is not hating yourself. It's seeing Jesus as supreme over all things. So lift up your eyes. See the exalted Savior King. He will reign forever. Like This isn't make-believe. Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever. And so, believer, take heart. This is who your Jesus is, this power. And He puts all of His omnipotence and all of His omniscience to work for your good, for His glory. And He's with you. And so with Paul, let us say, man, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let us have that boldness. Jesus will reign forever. He is better than anything we could stupidly try to build our lives around. Why gain the whole wide world and lose your soul? I mean, you are going to bow to God one day. Everybody will. Everybody will. And we can do so as willing trophies of His grace or as subjugated trophies of His justice. But we will bow. Everybody. This is the supremacy of Christ. He is better than anything. He's the exalted Savior King. He's better than angels. May we live like it. Let's pray. Father, help us to not settle for lesser things, but to live for the the King who will indeed reign forever, who is on His throne and will forever be on His throne. He's sitting now at the right hand of the Father. There's nothing, who, there's nothing that can compare. If we try to compare Him to anything, I mean, like the author of Hebrews does, He's better than angels. He's better than prophets. He's better than the priests. He's better than the kings. He's better than the old covenant. He has a better sacrifice. And so, Father, help us to see this and then live in light of it. Because He's better to endure. Because He's better to have faith. Because He's better to obey. To trust You in the big things and in the small things. We sang in the first song, in the mountaintops and in the mundane. In the sorrow and in the dancing. you are good and kind and gracious and merciful and better. Lift our eyes. Encourage our hearts. 
to look to you. To trust you. Savior King. In Jesus' name, amen.